Hi, my name is Efe Levant. I am the editor-in-chief of Mangal Media, an online publication for writers and artists from the so-called periphery. We publish a wide range of material, including investigative journalism, personal essays, and short stories. We of course also share memes on social media. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations, so make sure to also check out our Patreon page and browser-exclusive supporter rewards. So this is a conversation with Matt uh, Dara Margosian, or Margosian. He's a Taiwan-based Lebanese-Armenian-American who founded Asia Art Tours. It's an art and activism-oriented organization based out of Taiwan as well. And he's also the host of the highly recommended The Arts of Travel podcast. Matt first had me on his podcast in November of 2019 to talk about the then ongoing uprising in Lebanon. Since then, we've become good friends and have tried together to find answers to some of the difficult questions around identity and the left, as well as its failures. In this first of a two-part conversation, we spoke about the limitations of the whiteness category in an American context. Given that Matt is based in Taiwan, speaks Mandarin, and regularly talks to interesting guests from around Asia and beyond on his podcast, we also spoke about Taiwan, about Hong Kong, and their struggles for recognition in the shadow of China's massive influence on the world stage. We also spoke about how Taiwan has dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic, despite being excluded, at China's request, from the World Health Organization. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesetimes, or on Instagram at TheFireThesetimes, and you can also support it on Patreon or on BuyMeCoffee.com. Thank you for your time. American. We'll talk about both those identities and why they're important in this podcast. I'm the founder of Asia Art Tours, an art and activism-oriented organization based out of Taiwan, and I'm also the main host, researcher, interviewer, and producer of the Arts of Travel podcast. I think that's important to note whenever people listen to podcasts in that um, for a lot of these things, um, people don't really have the, uh, uh, whenever there's a team to produce a podcast, uh, I think it's important to note for a lot of people that this is an interesting form of activism, but there's a lot of, uh, money that goes into podcasts these days that maybe should call into question, um, how the form has changed. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with, uh, the fact that you live in Taiwan. I've read quite a lot of interesting things about Taiwan recently, including I've also listened to uh, one of your episodes, if I remember correctly, about how Taiwan's reaction to the COVID-19 crisis, the coronavirus pandemic, has really set it apart in many ways from most of the rest of the world. It also because, and we can talk a bit about that, uh, the fact that Taiwan is excluded from the WHO for, for obvious political reasons. Can you talk a bit about um, yeah, about Taiwan's reaction to the COVID-19 crisis and how it compares to other countries in the region and beyond. And obviously not just the perspective of the government's response, which is interesting in itself, but also how you've seen people uh, responding where you live yourself. Sure. So it's important to know um, whenever you have someone who's a uh, uh, migrant or expat, like my situation, to center people who've taught them. So I was very lucky when I moved to Taiwan, I reached out to Brian Kyo, who is the founder of New Bloom magazine. Uh, and New Bloom is sort of this intersectional organization that works with leftists 
Um, throughout Asia, though, is primarily concentrated on Taiwan to sort of explore how to build intersectional solidarity both on a societal level here in Taiwan between classes, but also to sort of dissolve the very toxic nationalisms uh, of a China, of a Korea, of a Japan, of a Hong Kong, and try to build uh, international solidarity in that way. So um, people like Brian Hill, people like Wen Lu, people like Lev Nachman uh, have, have been instrumental along with more liberal uh, or if progressive, depending on how they would represent themselves. I don't think they would say leftist though. Uh, people like William Yang are instrumental in building amazing in-depth and um, good faith coverage of how Taiwan is handling uh, the COVID-19 crisis as well as politics um, for an English language audience. So I highly recommend all those people, just like I would highly recommend uh, Lao San for coverage of Hong Kong. So from the perspective of just sort of a, um, a someone who speaks and reads mid-range Chinese and um, is fairly apprised of these issues without being an epidemiologist or uh, uh, within government in any way. Um, what's been um, uh, really interesting about living here in Taiwan is the compare and contrast to the United States, which as you know, um, and I'm sure people have known at this point because it is a joke internationally, a sick joke internationally, complete difference in the level of care and detail shown to citizens. So sort of the very early on in Taiwan, they banned flights, um, I believe initially first from Wuhan uh, and then from China. Um, then you started to see these progressive uh, reforms put into place in a way that I think felt very democratic. It's important to note in Taiwan, there is a very large political schism uh, between the DPP uh, and the KMT, uh, one of whom would be, I think Brian Hill speaks very eloquent on it, has a long history of interacting with uh, civil society, progressive groups, and in general is sort of a party of revolting against the former dictatorship of uh, Taiwan. The DPP would be more, the more progressive, the KMT is the more regressive, the more aligned with sort of nationalism, populism, and the former dictatorship that Taiwan was under. So the DPP led government um, very early on, um, in part uh, because of their exclusion from the WHO, um, had to fend for themselves. They did have prior experience with SARS, but the WHO and some of the politi politicalization of science that I think is well documented at this point um, caused them to be very skeptical of what was coming out of the WHO. They sent their own experts into Wuhan. When those experts came back, you started to see policies being immediately put into place about um, the cancellation or screening of travelers from Wuhan or cancellation of flights from Wuhan. Then this gradually moved into holding off flights from mainland China. Um, then this moved into sort of a gradual closing of the borders. So in terms of these um, responses where the state of exception can be introduced and we do have to be very careful about borders and others and othering, they've done that in a very humane way. On the level of citizens, 
uh, you feel like you are being taken care of in a way that, you know, I would associate, I'm an American, so we're fucking dumb. And we're brilliant and dumb at the same time because we're exposed to a level of stupidity and violence that is built into our governance deliberately. As an American, you, you would associate it as something like a social democracy where uh, Taiwan allotted a certain amount of masks per citizen that people could produce at a set price. Um, and so you would see at designated places throughout Taiwan, people would line up in an orderly fashion to purchase sort of the designated uh, amount of masks. I believe it was something like two at a time within certain set time frames that they could purchase. Um, they immediately set up a national hotline. They immediately set up a service online, which is a very popular uh, mobile uh, social media app here in Taiwan that would give people daily updates. They started rolling out daily press briefings with um, senior members of Taiwan's government. Um, Brian or William Young would be better to talk about this, but uh, I believe, uh, well, I know, I just, I can't pronounce his full name because I don't want to mispronounce it, um, but one of the senior levels of uh, senior members of the DPP government um, was an epidemiologist trained in the U.S., and, and uh, I believe he is both the member of the government and the head of the CECC, which is the uh, Center for Disease Control here in Taiwan, and uh, they give daily briefings. You get daily briefings on your phone. And um, part of this as well for being sort of a migrant or an expat, um, and again, those are problematic terms that are probably, we're always stupid, but we just rolled with them because <laughs> um, white supremacy is a hell of a drug and it's been with us for a while and we're, you know, we're having to fight our way out of it. But... Um, Within um, Taiwan, how the governance has been structured, and when Lu talks about this a lot, where Tsai Ing-wen has long been sort of othered. She's childless, she's unmarried, people have speculated about her sexuality. She has a lot of flaws, but she has been relatively progressive on um, gay marriage, relatively. Long way to go for my utopia, uh, but for a, a, a sort of a capitalist democracy, progressive and progressive on uh, indigenous issues, offering, I believe, a formal apology. And Brian Hill would be great to talk about uh, that. So very early on, the Taiwanese government, as opposed to the Chinese uh, uh, People's uh, Republic of China government, which has stoked ethno-nationalism for a very long time and is starting to see blowback of those policies for the, with the recent treatment of Africans in Guangzhou and the recent treatment of uh, foreigners in major centers of neoliberalism like a Shanghai or Beijing. Very early on said, don't blame people, don't otherize people. They extended an amnesty that was intended for um, undocumented migrants who have immigrated here to work uh, in fishing or factories or other centers where um, uh, illegal immigration has been sort of tactfully tolerated by the state as part of its uh, mo modality of capitalism extended amnesty for people who could who would have to overstay because of the global cancellation of flights, extended a 30-day extension to um, more uh, ex, um, citizens whose uh, conditional sort of global citizenship, so subjects who are accepted as, as valued or tolerated by global neoliberalism like myself, um, were given a 30-day extension on our uh, visas, be they visitor visas or 
uh, visa exempt status. And um, it, it's, it's, it is a very chicken little moment for a lot of uh, progressives who are migrants or expats who are living in um, Asia at the moment. Wen Lu talks about this in a way where you need to write a book. We, we're not going to be able to get to it in a podcast. But there's a feeling, and she is an academic who's very careful with her words, very thoughtful, where she says, look, the neoliberalism of Taiwan is not as complete and not as seeped in the supremacist necropolitics you know, of a place like a United States, a United Kingdom, or an Australia. Um, because of its size, because of its total population, um, because of the level of participation in voting here, which is extremely high compared to the US, and I'd imagine the UK, there is a, a, a relationship that's not antagonistic between citizen and state in the same way you feel in the US where they actively want to kill you or they don't care if you die. And it, it's very striking talking to my family who will be a large component, I'm sure, of this podcast of as, as uh, Armenian American, you know, feeling again the state is betraying you. Armenians are very cynical for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about, about the state and about governance. And it is really weird talking to them. In fe it feels in some ways like a, a repetition of the trauma that we never spoke about, um, of, of states betraying us, of states sacrificing people, of a necropolitics that I think has existed for a very long time in, in different forms. Um, all those, that, that chicken little moment is here where I've long said to my family, the US is, is beyond repair. The Western world in a lot of ways um, has these flaws that are deeply cynical. And in a Taiwan, you know, I was playing basketball as a, as a white presenting individual two days ago. No racial slurs were offered, no othering occurred. Um, and on and this level of global governance, but also on the level of just day-to-day, -day, I can go into shops, I can eat, I don't feel othered. It's markedly different from the racism that we should know is, is very extreme in the US, UK, and Australia towards Asian Americans, but we're also seeing blowback towards uh, within other ethno-supremacist modes of government in a China that has stoked ethno-nationalism, and in an India, where in Assam and other northeastern regions where people's uh, uh, appearance can look more like East Asian, um, in, in both those governmental structures, we're seeing a racism as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a good comprehensive response to that question, uh, I hope. Yeah, yeah, it was. Thanks a lot for that. So when we're talking about uh, Taiwan, one of the things that we discussed uh, previously before starting uh, the podcast, when we speak about the, the, the concept, the, the question of quote-unquote whiteness in, in, in an American context and how it relates to Lebanese and the Armenian uh, diaspora communities, and I know that the, the term diaspora communities has always been a bit contentious, I'm just using it to kind of simplify things for now. You've compared this to gaslighting, which I find very interesting, and I think I agree as well, which is actually not too dissimilar uh, from those who call Hong Kongers and Taiwanese, who just call them Chinese. And there's, a clear, there's clearly a feeling of having one's identity erased, basically. But you've mentioned refusing this, rejecting this, refusing to be defined by toxic structures of power. So can you talk a bit about your relationship to this concept of whiteness in an American context? And I know that this is, you know, 
it's a massive question that can have different uh, branches to it and so on. And do you see similarities and or differences with other groups of people in the US? So, the, you know, your experience as both uh, in the Lebanese American spheres and the Amer uh, Armenian American spheres, uh, as well as, as you said, being quote unquote white passing, uh, I believe the term is. What are some of the your reflections on this concept of whiteness in an American context and how especially how it is used these days? Well, we can maybe break it up with Taiwan and uh, Armenia or uh, America. Um, and we can use as a hub if it helps. I'd imagine, Joey, this would be a very random remark, but I imagine geography, because of your skills with languages, is very helpful for you for centering. So you, we can talk about Dearborn, maybe, in America as well at some point in this chat. But So in Taiwan, um, this concept of gaslighting in terms of identity, uh, the inspiration for it would be uh, the recent um, article in The Nation uh, by Wilfred Chan of Laosan, and also, I think, some of my frustration and trepidation of speaking out about this issue because uh, broadly within uh, the Western left, I'd say, um, there is an anger at white supremacy that I think is trying to meet a hammer with a hammer rather than a hammer with a scalpel, where um, to, to sound like a, a leftist Malcolm Gladwell and our hair is similar, but our ideology is quite different. You know, I think that's a very good metaphor when we're talking about these things like tankies and uh, sock dems, social Democrats, who both their dreams have gone up in flames in the UK and the US. Um, that this hammer, the, the hammer of, of capital and the state is never going to be defeated by another hammer. It, it'll be defeated by a scalpel. It will be death by a thousand cuts. So what Wilfred Chan was alluding to in his wonderful article in The Nation is that for Taiwanese, uh, Hong Kongese, uh, Hong Kongers, I think would be the preferred term, Singaporeans, Chinese diaspora, though Wilfred focuses mostly on, um, on uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong, that these are individuals who've long had to fight uh, historic battles about identity. Um, there are great books. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a few links. Um, but essentially what it is is, is this battle for your identity played out uh, in the form of protest. So in Hong Kong, a huge part of it, and I mean, to me, it's beautiful and mystifying and so fascinating, a huge part of it is just over identity that, that comes across in very um, ways that I wouldn't agree with, so more nativist, sort of ethno-supremacist, sort of, again, a hammer, maybe meeting a hammer, and it comes off in these really complicated, interesting ways where you have South Asian migrants or community members um, from Chongqing mansions um, during the protest, standing outside uh, after the, um, the uh, Hong Kong government during the protest employed the use of increasingly violent uh, uh, law enforcement tactics. They were dyeing the uh, water in water cannons with pepper spray and also blue, so it would injure you and mark you as this protesting other. 
And during one of the protests, because the protesters scatter this way and that way, and Hong Kong is super dense, they would uh, they sprayed Kowloon Mosque. And uh, in your chat, which I recommend to people on Fires This Times with JP of Laosan, she talks about how this was this really strange moment in the city where it brought people together under this term Hong Konger or what it means to be Hong Kong um, in ways that were new, exceptional, and a, a refutation and rebuttal to an ethno-nationalism that China, uh, under Han supremacy, seeks to impose on Hong Kong. China has long tried to articulate um, its control over areas like a Hong Kong, a Taiwan, and a Xinjiang through governmentality that is based on ethno-supremacy. Xinjiang, I'm sure you'll get to on your podcast, but as scholars uh, like Darren Byler, um, and though I don't like him, Adrian Zenz, he does good work, but he's a, he's a, he's a Western supremacist in some ways, have documented painstakingly the cultural genocide and now the actual genocide of uh, the Uyghur population and the Turkic or Central Asian populations uh, in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, um, how China has tried to interact with the government, has tried to frame um, what it means, uh, what Hong Kong means, is through this sort of label of ethno-nationalism that China is the motherland. And um, what Wilfred is getting to in this brilliant essay is, look, we may look the same, but that does not mean I'm Chinese. And you hear this same rebuttal of sort of, um, of uh, phenotypic nationalism in Taiwan as well, where originally a lot of people were from China, but through the various myriads and folds of Taiwanese history, people have, particularly the younger generation, come to very much reject China, and with it have articulated, just like we were talking about in Hong Kong, where we're seeing South Asians, we're seeing immigrant communities feel more and more comfortable um, within some elements of this movement, say, I am a Hong Konger too. Jeffrey Andrews, who's a, a, a brilliant South Asian social worker, um, not to toot my own horn, would be a great uh, guest, or you can listen to our interview with him where he talks about this explicitly, of how the South Asians, this really was a historic moment where after the spraying of Chungking Mansion, uh, by a police water cannon, these individuals connected with a population that maybe there were racial divides before, but were uniting under this new banner of we're all Hong Kongers. Taiwan has, has a large aboriginal population. Uh, it also, I've seen varying statistics on this, I think one in 10 Taiwanese are not uh, Han Chinese. There's large migrant communities here, there's large amounts of intermarriage. Um, and Taiwan uh, has rejected the appeals of China, both on the level of governance, but also in terms of, as we talked about with Tsai Ing-wen, apologizing to uh, the Aboriginal community for their treatment under various periods of colonization, both Chinese colonization, Japanese colonization, European colonization, um, through individuals, um, through queerness, as well, where China has a very sort of heteronormative um, presentation, is very worried about concepts like Xiaoshen Rou, 
which are men who present like Korean boy bands. There's a huge blowback to that in China because it, it, it threatens patriarchy. Taiwan has invites queer YouTubers into uh, their governance to interview the president. Um, they have a trans minister within their government, Audrey Tang. Um, so what Wilfred is getting at in this article is that just because um, my phenotype or my ethnicity or all these terms that probably you and I and, and all the, the leftists that we associate with, these are not our terms. These are the terms we're shackled to and chained with. Just because I, I look Chinese, whatever the hell that means in a, <laughs> in the, in, when we look at the scope of human history, does not mean I think of myself as Chinese. I'm a Hong Konger. I'm Taiwanese. I'm Singaporean and so on. Now, for where I think a lot of leftism struggles and sucks, and I, it's very understandable because white supremacy has been, I don't know, the original sin of humanity. You know, if you like the work of Raj Patel, and I, I'm, I'm fine with that. But where it sucks is where you're in my situation, where I'm uh, Lebanese Armenian by blood, if we're going to do this blood quantum leftism, and maybe we can explore this in the chat. So I'm Lebanese American by blood. Now, my biological father left when I was, I think, two. Never met him, never knew him. He was called the sperm donor in my family as a sort of a callous joke about his parental performance. I was adopted at about two or three into an Armenian family. Armenians have a hyper-specific identity uh, formed by genocide and betrayal and immigration. And so I'm uh, phenotypically, if you meet an Armenian, you go, okay, you're an Armenian. It's a very specific look, very specific culture, very specific history. Uh, but I was adopted by those people and they loved me like I was one of their own. There was never any of this sort of blood quantum question about, well, he's not biologically an Armenian, so can we give him this last name? You know, I-A-N, the son of Margot. Um, there were never any of these questions. And where I've really struggled, both with tankies, with I think a very callous American left that I think is coming to terms with its egocentrism and solipsism, as well as with um, Arab uh, leftists and, uh, you know, to be honest, groups like Laosan is groups like me are, are just asking for the same nuance and solidarity that they themselves are asking for. When you label someone who's Lebanese or Armenian or better yet, this really complicated identity I present, well, well, his blood is not Armenian. We're asking for the same thing that you're saying historically you've been gaslighted for all these years. And the really large question that, again, this is a podcast, this is not an academic seminar, which is maybe good, maybe that's why we're able to talk so honestly about these things, is um, we, we're not going to be able to defeat, I think, white supremacy with a a equally large hammer that says white people. I fully subscribe to the work of scholars like a David Radiger, uh, uh, I think a, a Du Bois, and um, others who say whiteness was a project. And there's a lot of people who are lumped in there um, because it was the only secure thing they could grab onto as immigrants and migrants. And um, 
maybe we could build off this a little bit um, uh, in, in, in a few other questions, but I think that's a good sort of summary. If you're saying I'm Taiwanese, I'm not Chinese, then it should be, at least in my opinion, fair game for Arabs and Arab Americans to say I'm Lebanese, I'm not white, and then maybe one step further, if you have someone adopted into these cultures or you know modalities of identity like a Judaism or like uh, tribal identities where they don't use blood quantum either, maybe if we have all these inconsistencies, we should ask ourselves if how we are talking about whiteness and identity on the left needs to be reexamined if someone is crying out in solidarity and saying, I feel your pain, it's my pain too. Let's try to figure out a new language to talk about these things so we can build solidarity between a Lebanon, an Armenia, a Lebanese American, an Armenian American, and a Hong Kong, a Taiwan, and so on. I used to see, um, I used to look at myself as someone who was quote unquote in between, or to use Edward Said's uh, book title, you know, out of place. And it took some time, um, it's been almost five years now since I, I left Lebanon uh, initially just to do my studies and now I'm sort of in this, uh, I guess many, like in, in the situation that many people are where I don't really know where I'm going to be in a few months, let alone in a few years. I ended up, I would say in the past uh, year or so, kind of being more angry at the two places in this metaphor. So in between two places, uh, in between spaces, I'm kind of angrier at the fact that there are these two nodes uh, that I'm and I'm supposedly in between because I am a bit more uncomfortable now, I would say, about the fact that there are these supposed two nodes that are supposedly uh, fixed and cannot be deconstructed and are not themselves uh, part of the, uh, let's call it part of the question of identity. So I'm, I would define myself usually, uh, depending on how, how much time people have when they ask this question. Um, I would define myself as being from Lebanon of mixed origins. That's kind of like the easiest way of putting it. I grew up in Lebanon. I was born in France, although I don't have the nationality due to French, France's uh, citizenship laws. Uh, I grew up in a Francophone speaking Lebanese uh, family half of which would tell you they are Arabs, the other half of which would just tell you they're Lebanese. And in terms of mixed ancestry, that just comes down to the grandparents. One of them is Palestinian, one of them is uh, Italian, another one is Argentinian of Lebanese origins. So his father was Lebanese who moved to Buenos Aires. And uh, the fourth one is French, also of Lebanese origin. So her father moved to France uh, at some point in the mid 20th century. And so because of this very weird history, I have the citizenship of Lebanon and Argentina. As I said, I don't have the French one. Um, I don't have the Italian one either for uh, different reasons that I'm, we're not ourselves 100% sure about. And I'm not Palestinian due to the very, very, um, and this I'll leave this to another episode, very, very fucked up politics of Palestinian identity in Lebanon, or by, by which I mean how Palestinians are represented in Lebanon and how they are viewed by the Leb Lebanese state and uh, its sectarian parties. So long story short, in France, because I'm from a Maronite background, I can easily integrate in those kinds of communities because there is a sizable uh, Lebanese-French diaspora at this point, a second, third generation 
many of which are so well integrated they even join fascist parties that's how well integrated they are uh, there's one called uh, has the same family name as me i forgot his first name so his family name is ayub and he's part of the uh, front national here the fascist party uh, as, as an example of how well integrated some of them are in uh, as far as the argentinian state is uh, concerned i am uh, white they that's what i am on the on my citizenship in france it doesn't um, again this lebanese thing kind of gives you a get out of jail free card in america i haven't been there often enough i've been there only twice uh, chicago and dc uh for that to really develop into something but the really interesting to, uh, thing to me is the comparison between how I grew up in Lebanon and then how I was perceived in the UK. So I spent four years in the UK up until uh, literally three months ago, between 2015 and 2019. And as soon as I arrived in London to do my master's at SOAS, within like a couple of weeks, I discovered the term of uh, BAME, B-A-M-E, so black and minority ethnic. And the only reason I was I discovered this uh, term is that uh, this was part of the kind of student politics networks, if you want. And uh, I was basically told, yeah, you're, you're that. That's what you are. You're, you're a BAME. And I had no idea what it was. I literally Googled it on the spot when someone uh, mentioned this to me. It was in, like in the cafeteria, one of those casual conversations that ended up being a bit more awkward than they should have. And... I've never felt any anger towards that. It's nothing personal. It's just that I think I just felt the frustration at the idea that there are these fixed categories and whether for a matter of survival, people sometimes use these uh, categories, of course, to kind of as a, um, you know, tool of organizing to, you know, kind of get to know one another in, in a context where they feel that they are because they are racialized in a, in a very racist society like in the UK that they feel more comfortable kind of coming together in that sense. So it, it's the in itself, I don't think that uh, in the case of the UK that it's a problem. I just did not know how to act because in Lebanon, it's the opposite way. In Lebanon, if you want to use the racialized um, uh, category, the racialized terminology, we are the ones doing the racializing. Uh, the Lebanese uh, middle class, you know, Palestinians are racialized. As I mentioned, my grandfather, although... He was born in Palestine and grew up as a Palestinian. If you had asked him, he would never tell you that he's Palestinian. He would just tell you that he's Lebanese. And this is something that has been historically uh, common as a sort of forced integration in the same way. And we'll get a bit into that, uh, how in America you can, quote unquote, become white in Lebanon, you know, which is the story, obviously, of many Armenians, many Iranians. Um, although, you know, it can it can be a bit patchy how, how if, if that ever really stays or not. But the traditional story is that, you know, uh, Irish uh, people, uh, Italians and, and Jews from Europe uh, became white through several processes that we can get into a bit. In Lebanon, there are sort of similar things, not entirely, because Lebanon has a massive diaspora, as you know, and it has been historically very much defined by it in many ways. Like the diaspora's influence is uh, very sizable. Some of the big names of literature and so on, like Khalil Gibran, you know, those are people from the diaspora. They may have been born in Lebanon, but like usually the story is they left at some point and then they became uh, another identity as well. This this hyphenated identity that's very common. But even within that, uh, so so just to finish the initial uh, train of thought, in Lebanon we are doing the ones doing racialized the racializing. So I met someone who is 
whose mother is Ethiopian and whose father is Lebanese, as far as most people in Lebanon are concerned, she's not Lebanese. Like, that's it. Khalas, as we say. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't even cross people's mind uh, back home in Lebanon that this can be a thing. Like, you know, you, this can be something with all its contradiction that it might offer. This is an identity that actually exists. And so to go back to the initial point of being angry at these, no at these two nodes of identities, to use her as an example, I would be angry at the fact that there is such a thing as one, supposedly, in the eyes of these Lebanese, that the racist Lebanese that I'm mentioning, that there's only one way of being Ethiopian and therefore obviously one way of being Lebanese, and that's it. There's nothing in between. There can be something that's actually beyond that, maybe a new identity, whatever words we want to use, maybe a hyphenated identity, whatever it is. All of these things, you know, the fact that I come from a certain context and in that context, I was never fully, fully in it. And then I went to a different context and I was definitely not in it. Now in the third context, I live in Switzerland to continue my studies. And I'm definitely not in it either. And I don't think that there's actually any way of being in it unless maybe you're talking about with the youth and that kind of thing. So this has been like, okay, very long uh, response, but I think it's, it's necessary to kind of talk about these nuances and why concepts like whiteness and white passing, while in some um, cases I can definitely see how it can be used, as you say, like a hammer against a hammer. And maybe some people, uh, if you're, you feel vulnerable enough, you know, maybe a hammer is what you feel you need at the moment. But, and that's obviously very important, it doesn't seem to me that this is something that you know, is uh, sustainable. If you want to, we want to use that term. It doesn't feel that you can really use a hammer every single day. At some point, you're going to be exhausted yourself. So I will transition this in a first. Let, let's. I'll, I'll. Sorry, I've been speaking for quite some time. I'll just give you some time to reflect on that, and after that, we can kind of uh, transition a bit into the the politics of recognition uh, when it comes to the Armenian genocide as a Lebanese Armenian, as an Armenian American. Why does it matter so much? And given that you're in Taiwan, you can obviously reflect on the fact that Taiwan has also been struggling to have this Taiwanese identity recognized as well. Well, sure. I mean, I think for me, um, um, I mean, there's a lot of things to pick apart there, Joey. Uh, two of the scholars who really come to mind Basically, trying to integrate yourself into these systems is to ignore the toxic center, which is essentially, I don't think there is really a whiteness. I think there is a sort of a contingent node of presentation that capital will allow. I was thinking, and this I think will resonate for Americans, if you watch sort of like old Simpsons episodes before uh, multiculturalism, be it liberal or neoliberal, um, was really prevalent, you would see all these weird jokes about like French people and Germans. Part of it probably is, is laid into this tension of World War II, but I, I really do think if we had seen, let's say, whatever this... Uh, you know, an alternative world where America continued on its supremacist path, and if we got a more liberatory and confrontational France, um, or a more confrontational Germany, you would see this othering and sort of humor that actually has very sinister undertones, even if it appears very light, sort of continuing uh, to develop in America. You see it a bit with Russiagate, 
honestly, where, you know, Russian Americans, no one really talks to them or talks about them, or if they do, they have these really fucking boring sort of sock dem level conversations where part of the problem for the left is no one knows who anyone is. No one knows the stories of the people who are talking on the podcast. No one knows the stories of the people who are giving the lectures. No one knows the stories of the people leading the organizations. We're all very secretive and um, very, um, very non-transparent about these stories of how we arrived at where we're at. And I think in particular for whiteness, you started to see a little bit of these conversations emerge with the death of Noel Ignatoff, who, because of his positionality in sort of elite academia, touched the lives of many people who were in positions of power in media who normally um, do not talk about themselves in a way that might be controversial. But you started to see some of these conversations about the death of whiteness. For scholars like Jody Malamed, Long T. Bue, uh, and Ellen Wu, or I'm sorry, Ellen Wu, they talk a lot about the only way to sort of become part of whiteness is to become part of capital. Long T. Bue talks a, a lot about the tensions uh, for uh, Asian Americans where with the doubling and tripling down of STEM, for example, um, he points to figures like um, there was a Taiwanese spy in the United States. And uh, this spy, you know, was, was immediately otherized and there was all this very dark and, and sinister language about Chinese academics that's continued to this very day. But it, it doesn't change the fact that within sort of a neoliberalism or an increasingly an authoritarian capitalism, the safest place to align yourself is either with the state, regardless of how violent it is, or capital, regardless of how exploitive it is. And you see this throughout, um, predominantly, um, at, at least at this moment in time, um, you'll see this with anyone who's not sort of quote unquote white, where there's all these tensions that emerge with like, um, um, I'm trying to think of the woman's name, there was a woman who wanted to integrate herself into uh, a venture capitalist firm in Silicon Valley. She would have been the first Asian American woman. And there's all this tension about um, would that be would that be progressive, you know, to have this Asian American woman? You saw this a lot with Obama, where we saw sort of the limits of liberalism. We had a black president what happened for most black Americans was, was there was no progress. We see this a lot within India where there are a lot of people, the ethno-nationalism there, how it presents itself in capitalism is you have to be aligned with the BJP. The BJP controls a lot of the media and a lot of capital in India. And so in both the Democratic and Republican Party, um, people, Sterney Hoyer, who's the number two to Nancy Pelosi in the USA, has been at BJP events, as had, has Donald Trump. And within the Biden campaign, you know, the BJP has a senior position. Um, so I suppose for a lot of immigrants, um, what I'm trying to get at here is that this whiteness, even at the level of like a German or a French person, though much less so, 
but definitely for an Armenian or Lebanese, that whiteness is contingent. The moment that sort of white supremacy that's at the heart of uh, the American form of capitalism is threatened, it'll shake you off immediately. And we've seen that with these figures who um, threatened or somewhat disrupted or caused contradictions in that system, like this Taiwanese spy, um, like the uh, individual who was trying to enter into venture capitalism. And whenever there's a terrorism event in the United States, the same thing happens again. The snow globe of whiteness gets shook. Those people are immediately otherized. And this is something that um, I think will, can never be answered by uh, a sort of a liberal representation that through tries to put people of color in positions of power in systems that are inherently based on exploitation and violence. So for my family, there were two ways you could become white. The first was the capitalism of a Henry Ford. So the Armenians uh, in my family, they immigrated to the US. Eventually they got jobs either in sort of these pools of immigrant capital. So Armenians would sort of take care of each other and eventually this coalesced in a company called Masco, which is owned by um, an Armenian American billionaire, the Manugians. Um, or you worked on the Ford assembly line. That was one way that Armenians could sort of become white. Um, the other way you could become white was like the way my grandpa Joe, Joe Dagger, Joseph Dagger, became white. World War II, there were bad whites, the Italians and the Germans. You go kill those whites, you become the good white. So he joined the army, was very capable, um, and you know got promoted to this position of captain, married into a white family, and sort of swore off his otherness. You know, he was integrated into the state after that point. Before that, poor immigrant got the shit beat out of him, held out of school, very much otherized in the Arab ghettos of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, but throughout our lives, the, this sort of snow globe of whiteness would get shaken up. So we would see that play out in events around the Armenian Genocide, where um, we saw the limits of the state in terms of recognizing us, where uh, John Schwarz is probably the most prominent German uh, journalist to document this. Armenians have been betrayed, you know, as long as everyone else has been betrayed by the Democratic Party, where every year the candidate will go to large pools of voters in Massachusetts, Michigan, California, say, we'll recognize the genocide. Turkey rattles its sabers. I am using Orientalist language there intentionally to be facetious. And, um, you know, that promise to recognize the genocide is uh, disavowed. For the Lebanese, um, you know, that image is, that snow globe of whiteness is shaken every time Israel either bombs Lebanon. My grandfather wanted to connect his family back to Lebanon. He was the last fluent Arabic speaker in our family. And um, uh, Israel at, uh, in the mid-2000s bombed uh, Beirut airport. We couldn't fly in. That was sealed off from us. Whenever there's a terrorist attack of any uh, Arab American, Central Asian, or um, non sort of the original trinity of whiteness in the US, that otherness is immediately called into question. And it's joking most of the time. And I think a lot of people say this about things like their names. What's Dagger? What's a Margosian? You know, because we're 
sitting in the classroom with people who have much more Anglo-Saxon names. When we invite people over for Thanksgivings, it is very Americanized. You know, we have our turkey and our stuffing, but we also have chureg and idishki or, you know, kefta and grape leaves and hummus. Um, we are listening to both Britney Spears, but also Feyruz. Um, and I think that um, oh, scholars at this point have very well documented, and I would recommend those people. I've given a very crass summary because it's so complex and so hard to talk about. But figures like Jody Malamed, Long T. Bway, Ellen Wu have sort of talked about, number one, both the really violent path a lot of Arab Americans have had to take to sort of be integrated, quote unquote, into whiteness, um, and uh, talking about how for non-white minorities, again, whatever the fuck white means, um, how often the safest paths and the ones that were reinforced by the state with the hollowing out of the humanities um, and the creative arts are these STEM paths that lead to the, you know, the, the only way to be safe um, in the United States is to integrate yourself into either the state or capital. Otherwise, you can be labeled sort of an expendable, invisibilized other. And I think a lot of these things play into Lebanese and Armenian identity, where we, we are fairly well integrated into whiteness in that sense. But in the other sense, there's these constant moments where that whiteness is shaken up and called into question. And there's no way to be white, I think, fully if you have a genocide in your history. I don't, you know, I, Armenians, I think, shut the fuck up because they're survivors. Um, I think you don't see a lot of this talk because for Armenians, there's been this, such this of history of betrayal of no one, both Joe Biden and Hitler don't remember the Armenians. No one remembers the Armenians, that famous apocryphal quote from Adolf Hitler. And that's continuing on, you know, whether Biden or Trump gets the nomination. No one has given a fuck about us. Um, for hundreds uh, of years at this point, I think a hundred years at this point, uh, around there. Um, and I think um, we're at a point where many of us are in the same boat that the Armenians have been in for a long time, of a, a very unreliable state, of camps. Um, this has been part of our project, where why we, we freak out a lot about camps is because it's such um, a, a signature fear for Armenians. Um, and where a lot of us are having that snow globe shaken up, where part of the rage, and I'll get in trouble for saying this, but it's fine to say, part of the rage that you're seeing, um, there's been many poor Asian Americans dying and invisibilized in pools of illegal labor um, and Hispanic uh, migrants for a very long time. Part of the rage you're seeing is capitalism is under threat. It's shaking that snow globe of who can and can't belong. And a lot of people are getting rattled in ways that they thought they had sort of graduated out of. Um, and I think these are really hard questions. And I, I, to be honest, I don't think Asian Americans can fight this battle alone. I think they'll lose. I think as long as we segregate ourselves into these categories that white supremacy as the original sin is the reason we're all different, right? Um, if we keep separating ourselves in this moment of, of rupture, we're going to lose. And it's, it's going to take articulating a leftism, I think, that can see uh, a, a Hong Konger and an Armenian American or an Armenian 
uh, or uh, Taiwanese and a Lebanese in the same fight. I think if we try to articulate ourselves as a represent in this representational politics of liberalism, we'll get torn apart, separated, and um, we will lose to this very violent ethno-supremacism we're seeing in Turkey, China, India, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, uh, Canada, and, and uh, the, the epicenter of evil, the United States. And would you mind expanding a bit on the Taiwan dimension of it? Well, well Taiwan, I mean, I think um, for Taiwan, they have lived under the shadow of China, you know, um, the moment it became clear that Taiwan was not going to choose this Faustian bargain of capital. Um, so a very important part in, in Taiwanese history and why you see these really interesting points of solidarity between um, Hong Kong, Taiwan. So Hong Kong, you saw these really interesting sort of, like I think what Alexander Reed Ross, who I don't agree with, with you know, to be frank, a lot of his scholarship, but I think he's insightful enough that he's worth citing. Um, so Alexander Reed Ross sort of talks about these left-right fascisms. I've personally been exposed to that because a lot of the Western left is just really shitty people who don't actually talk to the people that they claim to be advocates for. Um, you know, uh, there's a huge amount of racism that goes into positioning China as this anti-imperialist other to the U.S. when you've never actually done any research on the country. Um, and that's very apparent when you look at, unfortunately, things like a means TV or, you know, a Chapo Trap House where they talk without knowing or they talk without actually having dialogued with people there or having done any research. So Hong Kong and Taiwan were both given this Faustian bargain of capital for um, identity, where Hong Kong, at certain points in the protest, you would see this sort of dialogue either from sort of the apparatchiks who control Taiwan um, or within the Communist Party itself saying, well, they just need more houses. They just need more money, basically. You saw that in Taiwan in 2014 under the Sunflower Revolution, where uh, then the, the current leader of Taiwan was a man called Ma Ying-jeou, who was trying to do this huge sort of backdoor deal that would unite essentially Taiwanese and Chinese capitalism at the expense of Taiwanese independence, where basically they would have become so integrated it would have been impossible to separate them, and over time it would have been very easy to sort of um, enfold tai Taiwan uh, into China. So the Sunflower Revolution, where we saw a lot of similar themes and similar moments, the occupation, like we saw in Hong Kong, of their legislative center, we saw that in Taiwan. Um, and in both these instances, we see this amazing refusal of these many voices, very much in the vein of something like the Zapatistas or the Lebanese protests, where it's like, together we walk. All these different people, probably none of them have read Marx, or very few of them, uh, recognizing in this moment that this is a Faustian bargain. And maybe they can't articulate in the language of something like a Jacobin, which has a myriad of flaws, um, for some of the reasons we've talked about in this podcast, why that is, but they know that 
giving up their identity is, is something that's priceless, right? Um, and this is a tension that I recognize for a lot of Armenians, where Armenians have this really strange language where like they talk about Odar. I don't know if you've heard that word, but Odar in Armenian basically means other, not Armenian. There's all these tension in these Armenian families where, okay, integrate yourself into capital. You know, become a doctor, become a lawyer, be useful to the state or be useful to capital. In many instances, they're one and the same. But at the same time, you know, I look at my, my cousins who now have these sort of Anglo names, last names, and there's a twinge of shame or worry or pause. Armenians communicate in silences, at least in my experience. You know, there's, you, if you talk to an Armenian most of the time, Armenian-American, um, unless they're very uh, activist-oriented like me, you can learn a lot more by what they don't say than what they do. And there's a lot of silences when these last names come up. And there's a lot of pride, you know, when they see that name Margosian, where, where that name is still attached. Um, and for Armenians, this has long been sort of a Faustian bargain. And I think for a lot of Arab Americans, this is this Faustian bargain of how deep are you willing to go into these into accepting these systems of violence so that that violence isn't again turned on you like it has so often throughout history. My family also originally is Maronite Christian. And, um, you know, my grandfather talks a little bit about that where within uh, the Ottoman period and then the French period, it was very contentious, um, these questions of identity. And Armenians, I think it's the easiest thing to go. You know, they were almost wiped out. Hey everyone, so this was the end of part one. Matt was kind enough to send me this voice note in which he reflected upon the importance of Dearborn, Michigan and of an Armenian church that his family used to frequent. Uh, the influence that they've had on his identity as a Lebanese American and an Armenian American. So I'll leave you with this, with Matt's uh, final thoughts and you will find the rest of our conversation in part two. Thank you. So one of the things we didn't get to that I just wanted to note is sort of um, the longing and the imaginary Armenianness and Lebaneseness that exists for Armenian Americans and Lebanese Americans. And um, to connect this to sort of larger themes of where I really felt Western left media in particular, but also a lot of left media really fails is that it, it tries to build these huge sort of narratives of let's, you know, not to pick on Sanders, um, but his campaign, Not Me, Us. And it's a great campaign. And I think he, he did try to articulate that in many ways and how he structured his policies and um, the presentation of his rallies. But so, for example, when he, he went to Dearborn, which has a, the, the North America's largest Arab American uh, community. And um, while there, he uh, had Palestinians do a traditional dance um, from Palestine, Palestinian Americans. And it was a very Arab American uh, presentation at, the, at this campaign rally. Where Western left media, I think, has done a very bad job and where we see these figures like an Alexander Chi or uh, Jessamine Ward or uh, other individuals who I would call sort of neoliberal multiculturalists, multiculturalists fill in the gap where they say the way to 
you know, identify and find your identity and find yourself is to integrate into these systems of domination and oppression, the academy, capitalism, being a model minority, etc. Where I think the Western left fails and allows these individuals to fill in the gap would be um, in this part of the us, of the not me us, where we don't know who the us is. We try to present these issues on the left through these huge personalities and these huge questions of foreign policy without ever centering the sort of individual stories that though I disagree with the conclusions of the neoliberal multiculturalists, they do a very good job of telling their stories even if I don't like the endings. You know, the ending is integrate into capitalism, go to Harvard, um, try to align yourself with um, these countries who have this evil seed of white supremacy at their center um, and so on. So for uh, my own experience as an Arab American and an Armenian American, the places that would make me connect to these identities would be twofold. One would be Dearborn. Uh, and I'd imagine there is a great many novels from progressives and leftists waiting to be written about the uniqueness of going to Dearborn as, a, as an Arab American, connecting to the myriad of, of cultures there and sort of feeling your way out in terms of the things you've lost by your family's choices of trying to integrate you into whiteness. So when we would go to Dearborn with my mother, who looks very Lebanese, um, my grandpa Joe called her the olive oil princess, that she had olive oil running through her veins. Um, you know, they would try to talk to her in Arabic, and she'd go, no, I can't speak Arabic. And when we would go there, my father, who's Armenian-American, you know, would listen to Feyrus in the car the entire time. And when I was younger, I sort of hated it. You know, like, why are you listening to this Arabic music? Let's listen to, you know, whatever, No Doubt, or whatever we were listening, Hootie and the Blowfish, Dave Matthews Band. But um, seeing this sort of hyphen, I have a hyphen in my name, but the other hyphen is Arab American, Armenian American, was really transformative for me. Um, Dearborn is where I went to my first anti-Zionist rallies. It was, you know, the first place. Um, I really started to connect and question what it meant to be Lebanese. And my grandfather was never going to really teach us that. He was very proud of being Lebanese. He spoke Arabic till the day he died. And he, he almost remarried again, bringing a Lebanese woman back to America um, when we were young. But, um, you know, that is where I first started to ask a lot of these questions. What does it mean to be Arab? What does it mean to be Arab American? What does it mean to have this hyphen in my name? What does it mean to have this hyphen in my identity? What does it mean, you know, when all these people can speak Arabic and, and my family sort of chose to hide that? Um, for the Armenian side, the sort of that part of the us, that part of my story would be the Armenian church. So the Armenian church, for many Armenians uh, in the diaspora community, at least in Michigan, though I'm certain this is true elsewhere, church was you know, where you met other Armenians, where you married <laughs> other Armenians, where you, where you sort of 
grew these networks of connection that you either felt uncomfortable or scared to do um, in more white settings. So that, you know, Armenians like a Jack Margosian, um, my, my grandfather on my father's side, could integrate in, you know, could, could be Armenian in these settings in a way he can't at his factory job at uh, Dearborn, Michigan, where I think a lot of the, the feeling of solidarity for a lot of Armenians was built. And for me, a lot of these questions of identity and maybe what we, we've called in this chat sort of the hammer, using, trying to use a hammer uh, to destroy white supremacy instead of looking at these complications. Racial tankyism might be another term I use. Um, or simply not understanding that whiteness is a process and maybe to paraphrase the Field Sisters, most of what that process is is which whites will reign supreme or in this era where we see these ethno-supremacies interlinking and supporting one another, um, best exemplified by India's BJP party and its numerous links to uh, the Tory party in the UK as well as the US Democratic and Republican parties, um, how these ethno, which ethno-supremacists will, will reign supreme. Um, and maybe that is an era we're moving into increasingly um, that we need to think critically about. For me, where a lot of these critical thoughts first emerged was in the Armenian church as someone who doesn't look Armenian. Um, and the love my family showed for me and the trust where, again, um, this is just unique for me, but it, it raised a lot of these sort of blood quantum questions that we talked about and why I think just using whiteness as a catch-all, at least for Arab or Armenian Americans, is really problematic. To bring me into this space that Armenians in the United States had been using for years, for decades, as a way to build solidarity, to heal themselves after the legacy of the genocide, where for my, my grandma Anne and her, and her husband, uh, Jack Margosian, you know, their parents were exposed to the horrors of genocide, of rape, of their families being beheaded um, in front of them, the, the, the patriarchs and the Armenian families being beheaded in front of them, of walking through the Syrian desert, to, to bring me in and to say, you know, this is our son, this is Matthew Dagger Margosian, the Armenian part of my name, you know, forever shook me. I couldn't really appreciate it until I was older, but, um, it really transformed how I thought about solidarity, about identity, and questioning the neoliberal multiculturalism of uh, sort of representational politics and the limits and failures of that methodology. Um, so I think that is an interesting way to think about at least my identity for me. I think I associated a lot with place. Um, one of those places being Dearborn for the Arabic side, the other being the Armenian church um, in, uh, in, in, in Detroit. Uh, and I think for the left generally, that would be very valuable to do more of that, to, to not turn away from these big ideas, but um, figuring out a better way to center the um, 
the people who are in those conversations. So for me at least, and, and we'll talk about it later in this chat, um, figuring out how people see themselves, how they talk about themselves, how they identify uh, is really important to me. And I get very nervous and skeptical when there's narration, when there is a desire to, even if um, you are doing it to oppose supremacist policies, you attempt to otherize them, um, or you attempt to define their identity. And I think in a lot of the policies that have not gained the traction, I would expect where I've seen a lot of success is through the ideology not of, let's say, a social democrats uh, or you know um, people like Yanis Varoufakis and sort of this pan-Europeanism where we're still trying to tell these huge stories but where we get down on the level, hopefully we've gotten on this podcast, of telling the small stories and then building them up to these big ideas. Um, so you know the Green New Deal I don't think works without centering you know, the forest where someone is going to lose that walk in the park every day. Um, my grandfather used to take me on walks in the park and tell me about Lebanon and World War II and um, these sorts of things. I, I don't think these questions about anti-racisms work as well unless we are centering these huge conversations of intersectionality in the intersectional stories of who we are. Um, so rather than you know, these huge um, narratives or um, these huge narratives of sort of anti-racisms, making sure, and I think actually we, there, this has been much better, but making sure that we center those policies and politics in these stories of who we are and how we got here. And I, I think that when we define them or letting them be defined as liberals have defined them where basically we will put non-white people in these positions of power based on having matriculated through these neoliberal training centers of a Harvard or Yale and we can trust them to integrate themselves into these positions of power and, and further their reach and scope and um, formidability um, it's, it's very hard to defeat that with a leftism that is also unwilling, is, is unwilling to match that and is unwilling to show the power in centering the stories of leftists who oppose those ideologies but come from these identities um, that are very different and complicated themselves. So a leftism that did a better job sort of saying um, I'm, I'm a minority or I'm a position, I'm a person of color or however someone wants to self-identify um, and, and how I am trying to build a movement is not through these centers of power and integrating myself into states that ultimately I think at their core are supremacist uh, and many of them at least in Western contexts that have these demon seeds of white supremacy um, within them. Um, but instead to say, no, you know, the leftism that I'm trying to build is one where uh, I'm integrated into it sort of because of these stories, because I know who I am, and the um, best practices that I learned 
from these parts of my identity. So for me, how I can do that is, you know, these stories of, of Dearborn and reflecting on what it meant to be Arab or Arab American, and then for the Armenian side, um, the church, and reflecting on, you know, the, the beautiful and selfless gesture of my Armenian family, bringing me in and saying, this is our son, this is our Armenian son, even if I was adopted. Um, so uh, that, I think, is important to note when we have these conversations on identity, centering these small stories uh, and building them into something bigger. Thank you.